The uh, sun does not always shine in West Virginia, but the people always do. And I'm delighted to be here. These are historic times in Appalachia. A lot has changed, a lot is changing now, and a lot still needs to change. In our podcast, we talk with changemakers right square in the middle of all this, working to ensure the change is for the good. You're listening to Change in the Coalfields, a podcast by Coalfield Development. I'm your host, Brandon Dennison. This is Change in the Coalfields, a podcast by Coalfield Development. My name is Brandon Dennison. I'm the CEO of Coalfield Development. This week is special. We have another CEO and another founder with us, Mr. Dan Conant, founder and CEO of Solar Holler, uh, which has become a legendary company in West Virginia, in Appalachia, and really in the country. The last time I saw Dan, he was in town because the Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, had come to learn more about uh, Solar Holler and Coalfield Development and all the good work that's happening in clean energy here in West Virginia. So Dan, thanks for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So uh, you are a proud West Virginian. Can you tell us uh, where you were born, where you grew up, and maybe just how being a West Virginian, having a childhood in West Virginia has shaped you? Sure thing. Uh, So born and raised in Jefferson County, I grew up with a Harper's Ferry mailing address, but for me, that meant uh, not being in the historical park, but out in the woods outside of Harper's Ferry. Yeah, just uh, spent my entire childhood all the way through high school in Jefferson County playing in the woods and hanging out on the mountain, as they called it. Then went through Jefferson County Public Schools, go Cougars. Yeah, and then went away for college before and bounced around the country for about 10 years before went to move on back home. Uh, so in 2013, my, I uh, convinced my wife to let us move back to Shepherdstown, 10 or 15 miles from where I grew up to, to launch Solar Holler. Yeah, definitely a uh, born and bred West Virginian, really proud of my golden horseshoe all these years later. Yeah, I share that in common with you. I never knew that. So got, got my uh, nice painted, uh, spray painted wooden. Absolutely. <laughs> wooden golden horseshoe. <laughs> I've kept it to this day. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it. Really proud of that. Yeah, for all of us, even though we were on the other side of the state from Huntington and Wayne County, we were uh, all my friends wrote, we just kind of grew up just assuming we'd get out of West Virginia, like so many folks across the state. Uh, so, you know, sitting around the lunch table in high school, we just talked about how we we're going to get out and where we we're going to go. And all my friends ended up going to Boulder and Boston and like big cities all around the country. And at the time, I was joining in that chorus and didn't, <laughs> it, it feels very funny um, all these years later to have been the one to go back and uh, start up, start up a company in, in West Virginia, in the hometown when, uh, when we had all talked about getting out. So, uh, but I, I think that ended up being uh, once I had more time to reflect on that and kind of coming out of college and missing home. Uh, I think that, gave a lot of fire and motivation here it was like, Hey, I don't want it to be where kids growing up in West Virginia feel like they need to get out. Like I don't want us all, you know, scurrying away. So, you know, I've been really intentional and proud that we've been able to try to build up a new industry here and a company that would let us keep people at home 
And honestly, you know, um, sorry, I'm just on a roll now. Uh, in a weird way, it's been a uh, uh, COVID and the pandemic made it easier for us to keep people in their hometowns. Because for the first what seven years of our existence, it's it it turns out it's really hard to try to recruit people to come and work with you and live in a town of fifteen hundred people, uh, no matter how cool Shepherdstown is. That was that was tough. And then when we went all remote uh, in early twenty twenty, we opened that up and said, "Hey, we you can live anywhere you want in West Virginia. Stay in your hometown. Stay in your home holler, and just dial in." And it's been really nice as a result so like now we've got people working with us in princeton and oak hill and parkersburg and fairmont and all over so we've really been able to you know spread out and scatter scatter around our hollers here and been really really proud of that move over the last couple years so is harper's ferry is that the one where the rivers come together and thomas jefferson said the view was worth the trip across the Atlantic or something to that effect? It, it is. It is. So the Shenandoah flows into the Potomac. Um, I, I know John Denver gets a lot of grief for how he wrote uh, Country Roads. Right. But it turns out it is very much a part of West Virginia, yeah. <laughs> the Shenandoah River and the Blue Ridge Mountains. And it is my part of West Virginia yeah. uh, through this uh, little 15, 20 mile sliver of Jefferson County. Uh, Shenandoah flows north. Uh, runs in the Potomac right there. Harper's Ferry, the town, is where those two rivers come together. And you've got these amazing bluffs and cliffs on either side. Virginia's right there. Maryland's right there. And all three states come together at that point. And the bluffs are just overlooking the town. The white water is awesome. And then the entire town is actually set in the 1850s. Uh, so for the history buffs listening, this will be old school, old news, but John Brown led a raid in 1859 to take over the federal armory where they were making all the guns for the U.S. military. And his plot was, or his plan was to take all the guns from the armory, arm slaves, and create a renegade state in Appalachia for, uh, for escaped slaves. So he and about... I forget the exact number, 15 others, roughly, including a, a bunch of his sons, because he had a huge family. Uh, he recruited all his sons and friends in, and they raided the town to do that. He got he got trapped in the firehouse. Robert E. Lee, when he was still with the American army, came in and squashed the raid. But as a result, we, we kind of kick-started the Civil War in Harper's Ferry, and then the town changed hands. And this is like major major significant history yeah yeah like uh really that sent all the southern states into a tizzy leading into the 1860 election really just like ignited the civil war out of harper's ferry and then during the war you know the bno railroad was running through whereas virginia and maryland are right there it was a really hotly contested town and uh, so it changed hands 23 times over the course of the war and it pretty it like, you know, before the war is about 5,000 folks. And then it got bombed out and went down to a couple hundred folks after the war. But then, so tons of really interesting military and political history there. And uh, then, and now the entire town is a national historical park, still set in the 1850s. My little sister worked there for seven years uh, making hoop skirts every day. Uh, so sewing hoop skirts. That's a niche. It is. Uh, she was really good at it too. 
and uh, doing living history. And uh, it's a it's a gorgeous town with amazing buildings, amazing history, and it's a and honestly, it's a gateway to West Virginia. Like uh, so, so many folks from the East Coast come through there, and that's their first taste of West Virginia, and they fall in love. Absolutely. And 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 clearly, I mean, you fell in love with that that landscape. You talk about the woods and the rivers, and uh, there's something about West Virginians. I think we do tend to be very feel very connected to our landscape, right? Yeah, it's uh, you know we right across the road from where I grew up, there were a couple hundred acres of woods that I would just wander through all the time, like scrambling over creeks, and then down the back hill was uh, you know if I went up and down the hill i was on the banks of the shenandoah and there were all these wildlife management areas around us we were about a mile off the appalachian trail growing up so spent tons and tons of time just walking yep walking the trail going to the shelters remember sitting in harper's ferry too remember sitting on the uh benches on the swinging benches at the outfitter the little um outdoor goods supply store and uh it's the halfway point on the appalachian trail and all the through hikers come through and it's, you know, we've also got the stock up, yeah, stock up and uh, more importantly for a 10 year old kid, uh, share war stories of the bears that they fought off and, uh, <laughs> and uh, the holes they put in their shoes. So I just remember being in awe sitting there uh, like as a 10 year old, uh, just off on my own listening, listening to all these grizzled hiking vets coming off the trail. Yeah. I'm really, really attached to it. And then um, for the last decade, I've been living in uh, Shepherdstown, which is about 10 miles upriver, which is just a funky little town right on the Potomac. My college town. We're going to get to that piece uh, here in a little bit. But as a kid, like, did you always want to start your own business? Did you always have that entrepreneurial fire? Or did that come later in life? Looking back on it now, it all makes sense. But at the time, I wouldn't have said like, hey, I'm going to be an entrepreneur um, or I'm going to start a business. Although I did start my first business in fourth grade, um, which was uh, buying up, uh, this is a kid of the 90s here, buying up sports pencils with the helmets on them. <laughs> I remember yeah. that. Did you have the little yeah. machine, like you put a quarter in, you could buy one? Of them. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So, but uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to buy these in bulk and then I'm going to like take out and then I'm going to uh, mark up all the pencils from people's favorite teams and uh, try to try to sell those. It ended in failure a couple months in, but uh, <laughs> but I had a lifetime supply of pencils on me after that. You know what do they say? Like only five percent of startups actually make yeah, it, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that that was my first business venture. Uh, I also had a short-lived uh, venture where I was going to bottle up honeysuckle, <laughs> and so I was taking uh, taking the little <laughs> honeysuckle buds one at a time, drop, 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 and I was going to bottle that up. So yeah, that was elementary school for me. Now in high school, I uh, thought about uh, going into law, thought about going into government. Uh, yeah, I mean, at, at that point, I, I just knew I wanted to be involved in renewable energy, like even senior year of high school, freshman year of college, I knew I wanted to be in renewable energy. And um, really, what made you, what, what led to that clarity of purpose? Uh, unclear <laughs> senior year senior year of high school that'd be like what year 2003 so we understand we're starting to understand climate change by that point yeah so uh yeah i was i was the 
geek in high school who had followed all the news and read the Kyoto Protocol, uh, which was the first international climate agreement uh, back in what 1997. So uh, even soft. Yeah, as soon as they got into high school, that was Kyoto. That was like when we talk thing. about like the Paris Agreement, Copenhagen Agreement, Kyoto was like the first one. Yeah, Kyoto. Yeah, uh, there was Rio in '92, and then Kyoto, and that was kind of like a more general one. Kyoto was the first time that all the countries of the world got together and said we're going to tackle greenhouse gas emissions. The U.S. didn't ratify it, uh, but that was that was the first agreement, uh, and the rest of the world ratified that uh, back in 1997. I was thinking about that uh, even even way back when. So then I got into college, was studying environmental science and uh, international politics and looking at all this stuff. So I don't know when, I don't know exactly when or why, but like really, you know, from all the way back then, this was pretty clear that it was I was going to be in this space. Now, I didn't know I was going to start up a company or do exactly that, but I, I just knew this was the industry. Yeah. Uh, my my mom uh, was a software engineer coder. Uh, she, uh, yeah, uh, especially back in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, so she, well, yeah. I wouldn't say that, but um, um, uh, so she did, she did all of that. And then my dad built custom homes. Uh, so he was a mason and a carpenter and built just gorgeous custom homes around Jefferson County and was the foreman on for a small little design and construction shop. So my first job as a kid was actually working, working construction with my dad. He, he never... He was really defensive, though. He never actually let me touch the power tools. He just uh, <laughs> gave me a broom and told me to sweep and uh, and take stuff out to the dumpster. Starting from the ground floor, quite. I know. Really. I know. So, yeah, I guess he, he didn't want a 12-year-old with a circular saw. So, yeah. So, mom, mom a coder, dad a construction guy. So, in that context, it kind of uh, what we do now, like, I do tons of software modeling for renewable energy so we can then go out and build stuff. So, I'm kind of, like, mashing up my matching up my parents with there all the pieces of yourself bringing them to full mm -hmm. full benefit mm -hmm. so uh where'd you go to college allegheny college in pennsylvania up, up near erie a uh, small little small little school my my dad drew a 300 mile radius around harper's ferry and told me i could go anywhere within that and so i went to the one that was 299 huh. miles away <laughs> You know, it's funny. That's partially why I went to Shepherd. My, you know, my, my parents basically said, you can go anywhere you want inside West Virginia where you pay in-state tuition. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so Shepherd Town was really about as far away as I could get <laughs> staying in state. And then I fell in love with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So at, at Allegheny, uh, they, they had an awesome environmental science program too, which is at the other end. The, that's the main reason I wanted to go. So uh, that was undergrad. And then uh, for grad school went to Johns Hopkins University for their study in renewable energy. Yeah, they had an, ener uh, an energy policy and technology program that I went through. And then from there, you end up in Vermont. Yeah. So after Allegheny, really wanted to work in renewable energy. At that point, there were zero companies doing renewables or efficiency in West Virginia. So I started bouncing around the country a little bit, moved to Vermont 
and D, well, did a couple years in Vermont, a couple years in DC, and launched with a couple other folks, the largest solar company in Vermont called Suncommon. And while I was in DC, I was working for some forestry organizations while doing, while doing grad school at night. And yeah, so had a, had a lot of fun launching that, got to um, launch in Suncommon, got to do some really cutting edge stuff where I launched three of the first 10 community solar projects in the country, which is where lots of folks get together and share the electricity from one system. Tell, that, that might be interesting just in case folks don't know. So like that could be 10, 20, 30 homeowners go into an agreement to share one system, right? Is that sort of what that looks like? Yeah. So like the initial ones we we're doing, it's changed a little bit since then, but the initial ones we we're doing, we'd, a neighbor would have their land and we'd put in a solar system on their barn or on their farm and then work with four or five of their neighbors to split up the electricity credits. So on each person's bill, we'd split it up where each one of them got 20% of the electricity credits to reduce their power bills. Since then it's grown a bunch. So, you know, in some cases it's 100, 150, 200 families all sharing a common system. At that point, there were only two states that allowed it, Colorado and Vermont, but now we're over 15 states have this kind of model now. And um, we were actually talking with a bunch of West Virginia legislators earlier this year and had a bill introduced to allow that in West Virginia too. Because turns out not everyone has good roof for solar. Like a lot depends on, you know, do you have, do you live in the middle of the woods? Do you rent? Uh, are you going to be moving in a couple of years? Just, you know, there's, there's reasons that people may not be able to go solar on their own homes, but if we can uh, kind of uh, work and, uh, you know, find, find good spots or lease out a farmer's land or, you know, uh, put, put some panels in a good spot and then share the power. It ends up being a really cool setup for folks. When and how did you decide, so you've had this phenomenal higher education background, you've got skill sets, strengths, capabilities that to be a solar entrepreneur, you have this great experience in Vermont. When and how do you make the decision to say, I'm going to start a solar company in West Virginia, which of the 50 states might possibly could be the hardest one in which to start a solar company, one could argue, I would imagine. It, it was argued to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, my, I remember my, uh, my bosses at the time, I, I told them I was uh, going to be, this is 2013. I told them I was going to be heading back home to start up, start up a little company. Uh, and they sat me down and they're like, are you sure, Dan, are you sure? <laughs> because you're sounding insane right now. <laughs> um, so they, they tried to talk me out of it. Um, now, uh, I, I was feeling homesick, you know, I had always wanted to do this in West Virginia. It just mattered to me. And, you know, even though it was still fairly early days, it was just feeling really easy up in, up in New England. Um, so it, it was less about starting my own company. Like that it wasn't, it wasn't financial for me at all. It was like, I want to be home doing this at home. Uh, add on top of that, we were about to have our, uh, 
uh, our daughter Lucy was about to be born. And so I wanted to be closer to grandma and papa and uh, uh, have, have them around. Uh, so just between all of that, just feel, feeling homesick, feeling more the heart than the head. Totally. <laughs> de- de- definitely more heart than head there. Yeah. In 2013, applied for some grants, got a, got a startup grant. Uh, that let me, that let me come home and uh, start putting the pieces together here. So uh, tell folks uh, about your first project and that's going to, that will lead to how we met too, actually, right? Yeah, so um, so my original vision for Solar Holler was I wanted to. This is going to make it sound even crazier. I not only wanted to do this in West Virginia and kickstart an industry here, I also wanted to work with nonprofits because nonprofits always get left out and they're insanely hard to finance. Not exactly a entrepreneur's gold mine. No, not so much. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, let's let's take the two hardest spaces in solar. West Virginia and nonprofits and let's mash them all together. But like, ultimately I, like, I didn't want solar to just be for rich people. Like this is a tool for, you know, keeping dollars in your community for not shipping it out to AP every, every, uh, every month. Uh, and every dollar we were able to save with nonprofits meant more for their actual programming and what they were Born to do. So when I was originally starting up the company, I wanted Solar Howard to be a financing company for uh, solar on churches and homeless shelters and other awesome community organizations around West Virginia. And so I moved back home, start, start talking, uh, and get linked up with the uh, Shepherdstown Presbyterian Church, which had been thinking about solar for a while, wanted to, wanted to figure it out, but just couldn't afford it uh, at the time. So we hatched up a plan. Solar Holler was going to install the system for the church. We were going to cover all the costs. And the company, as, as a for-profit company, would be able to take the tax credits that uh, help support solar. Uh, but the church couldn't take those nonprofits because they don't pay any taxes in the first place. So the, unfortunately, the way the, the way this works is that if you're, if you're a homeowner or a business, you can, you can get incentives from the federal government. If you're a school or a recovery clinic or a homeless shelter, like, sorry, you're out of luck. Um, so the way around this was solar Holler was going to install the system, uh, do what's called a power purchase agreement where we'd sell the power to the church and we'd take all the tax rates behind the scenes and the church would pay less for their power than they were paying Potomac Edison. Uh, well, that's, that's all, you know, that's a tried and true model. It's done in about 25 States. I'm, I'm still convinced it was legal at the time. Uh, but the West Virginia public service commission told me, nah, you can't do that. Only the only Potomac Edison has the right to sell power in Shepherdstown. And in Huntington, only AEP can sell power. So they were saying utilities have a monopoly. You cannot violate that, even if it's not to sell power to folks across town. I was just trying to put in solar panels on a church roof. So without that, we lost access. Briefly, just for folks who are listening, like if you care about free markets, a lot of times like green industries are getting like get criticized for, you know, needing 
federal subsidies and federal grants, but what about this traditional utility setup sounds like a free market, you know, to any of us? Yeah, you know, the, the, the way it works in West Virginia is the utilities have an absolute monopoly on selling power in their territories. They get their rates set by the Public Service Commission. Uh, so customers can't shop around, but then the utility uh, has their rates set by the government and they get a guaranteed rate of return. They get guaranteed profits. They're the only company I've ever heard of that get profits. Yeah, get guaranteed profits of 10% on their the 10% return every year, no matter what. <laughs> um, so they're, they're the only ones like that. Um, when we got shut down, uh, when this project got shut down by the Public Service Commission, so the Public Service Commission said, you can't sell power to the church uh, and when that happened, we lost access. We, we wouldn't be able to take those tax credits. We wouldn't be able to get the USDA grants, all that. It uh, just really hurt the economics of the project, especially nine years ago before panel prices had come down as much as they have now. So uh, we went. I went back to the drawing board and uh, using that Johns Hopkins degree, figured out a way to instead of, if we weren't gonna be able to sell the power to the church, I said, fine, let's give it away. And we went back to the drawing board and created a crowdfunding program where I never asked for a dime from anybody in town. Instead, I asked people to let me install a little remote control on their electric water heater. And we registered a hundred water heaters in tiny little Shepherdstown as a power plant. Hooked all these water heaters up to the internet. We're able to monitor them in real time and turn them on and off every two seconds with fluctuations of the voltage and frequency of the power grid. So traditionally this service has been done by, you know, bigger power plants kind of going up and down or big pumped hydro. And we said, we can do this with water heaters in people's basements that are just sitting there. So we, we set up this power plant, turning the water heaters on and off, on and off every two seconds, and just like little bits here and there. Uh, my wife, Laura, was actually doing all the day trading on the water heaters and took the revenue from this power plant and put it into a fund within Solar Holler so we could give away solar systems to churches and homeless shelters and affordable housing groups and folks around the state. Uh, so that that first project would have cost the Presbyterian Church $55,000. Instead, we gave it to them for a buck. And, all, and instead, it was paid for through this really obscure corner of the electricity market. And that was our very first project out of the gate. Uh, back, uh, we went live with that in summer of 2014. And I remember at the time going around and explaining what we were doing to folks in the, in the energy industry around the country. And they were all amazed that it was happening in small town, West Virginia, and not in, not in San Francisco or Silicon Valley. It was like, no, we're, we're doing it in a town of 1500 people in the mountains. That's, that's how we got started. And then it was kind of off to the races from there. Um, once we, within, we had a big ribbon cutting and had 150 people out on a random Tuesday morning in August uh, to cut the ribbon. Uh, it was, it was the big thing in the town going on after that, 
like within four days, we've gotten flooded with hundreds and hundreds of folks around the state all saying, hey, I want to go solar, I want to go solar. And well, it turns out at that point, we didn't have the workforce in the state, didn't have people to actually install this stuff. And we instantly knew there was demand and that this is what people wanted. We just needed to build up all the all the skill sets and capacity and give folks a give folks a chance to be a part of it. And that's when I met Brandon. <laughs> so Shepherd Sound Presbyterian Church, it's an amazing church. There's a very vibrant congregation, very committed to social, economic, and environmental justice. And um, I was blessed to be the youth director at Shepherd Sound Presbyterian Church when I was at college in Shepherd Sound. And I, I was, I ha- it's funny, probably soon after you would have moved away from the area, I moved into the area. And then soon after I moved away from the area, you, you moved uh, back to the area. We just sort of missed each other. But as you were sort of talking with friends at Shepherdstown Presbyterian saying, you know, we, we're, we're really going to have to develop the workforce for this and that you really wanted to do it throughout the rest of the state. And a, a good friend of ours, uh, Than, and his wife, uh, Marianne Hitt, uh, thought of me and Coalfield and put us in touch. And, um, and you reached out. And I think, you know, the first time we talked, I could just immediately you were just clearly passionate and skilled and compassionate. I think, I think it was a pretty quick yes to collaboration, right? Like you didn't have to sell me too hard on it. <laughs> it really was. It really was. No. And, you know, we had this problem we needed, we needed people doing this stuff and well, it turns out, you know, we had a, had a lot of folks looking for work in the Southern part of the state, especially in Mingo and, Wayne and at that point mines were closing left and right and you know we needed like from the very start I wanted to make sure that we were piling as much good stuff into every project as possible and you know here was this chance to build up a workforce and build up a new industry in West Virginia let's do it in the places that need the jobs let's do let's let's try to you know, yeah, we're building projects in Shepherdstown or Morgantown, but like we really need income and jobs being sent into the southern part of the state. So let's do that. And so that that was uh, always a huge part of the motivation for me working with Coalfield at that point. So our first solar crew chief was a former coal miner, underground coal miner. Remember Robert? Yeah, I do. He was awesome. And already a licensed electrician. So he came right out of the mine because he worked on mining equipment underground. So he was already licensed, came right out of there, ready to roll. Our first uh, work truck was a, an old ice cream truck. <laughs> I, uh, did, did you see the uh, music on that? Like the, I don't think that worked anymore, but it still had the little window. I mean, we have some hilarious pictures of the guys like in their solar you know, solar hat it, in our first crew, it's like a green hard hat with, with like a friends of coal bumper sticker on it, sitting behind the window of a used ice cream truck. <laughs> yeah, no. So we had, a, uh, so yeah, instantly we wanted to work together. And so we started uh, working with, you know, working with Coalfield where I was developing the projects, um, you know, working with your guys, teaching them how to like what they're looking for, how they're doing this stuff. And then, uh, Coalfield, um, hiring up the workers and, and the crew members. And, you know, it was, it was a way for us to support Coalfield's 
good work too. So yeah, we started that in like oh, 2014, 2015. And then we kept going and did did a bunch of those projects using using that uh, funky water heater power plant, including a project on uh, Coalfields uh, offices and apartments in Wayne, and then Harmony House in Huntington and a public library. And then we just uh, kept going. So by 2016, I had uh, badgered enough investors to allow us to launch the first solar loan program in Appalachia for homeowners. Because, you know, obviously this stuff only works if people can afford it. And, you know, no one would have cars or, <laughs> or cell phones if you had to pay for everything up front. So we, uh, we launched that in 2016 and just started going to town. And so, um, you know, and these days we're up to 75. As of today, we're at 75 employees around West Virginia. We're, uh, this number at this point, it's like going up every week. Yeah, yeah. Like I saw you earlier this year, 55, saw you in the spring, 65. Yeah, uh, n- next week we'll be at 80. We, 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 exactly. we, 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 we just made five hires this week. So, um, it's, it's growing about the, yeah, go ahead. You're, the union decision was inspiring to me in late 2019, we had, um, uh, you know, we were, well, actually I, uh, going, going a little further back. So in 2018, we actually, uh, we, uh, Coalfield and Solar Howard had this joint venture. And in 2018, Sol- Solar Howard was doing well enough where we actually bought out our partnership with Coalfield and brought all of the Coalfield staff who had been working on it uh, with it under the Solar Howard banner and uh, just truly combined forces. So then uh, by 2019, things were exploding. You know, uh, AEP had been jacking up rates a ton. Uh, power was getting more and more expensive. At the same time, solar panel prices had been going way down. Uh, and we had set up all this financing and, you know, kind of laid the groundwork. So by 2019, demand was exploding and we just really needed, we needed good, solid knowledgeable, talented electricians and trades folks uh, and needed to be able to find them quickly and onboard them so we could take care of all the people that were looking to work with us. So we reached out to the IBEW Electrical Workers Union, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, and approached them about joining up. And the there were a bunch of motivations there Number one, we're going back to the golden horseshoe conversation from earlier. You know, West Virginia led the labor movement. You know, like unions were born here. <laughs> uh, they were born underground in the mines and in the steel. And, you know, people fought so hard and had to like died and had to like face down goons with the goons with Tommy guns. Well, they had faced down the U S air force. Yeah. Like we had, 
West Virginians had to give so much in order to uh, be able to band together and get decent, <laughs> get decent retirements and uh, get uh, like a 40 week and be able to like not make life about work. And, um, you know, and what script, the script money was a thing. And, you know, that was West Virginians led the charge to like get unions in place to unionize, to be able to get all these protections and really led the way for the rest of the country. And I, you know, just because we're moving over to a new energy technology here, just because we're switching from coal to gas to solar doesn't mean we have to give all that up. And uh, so that just meant a lot to me. And, um, you know, and beyond that, just the training and the quality and like the, the folks who go in and join, join the electrical unions are the best of the best. So we wanted to, uh, you know, be able to piggyback off of the union's pensions and 100% healthcare for the whole family and be able to offer all that. At the same time, we're having a safety net for our folks and be able to recruit from just having an amazingly talented pool of folks. So we, we reached out to them and they didn't have to sell me at all. <laughs> um, according to management management led yeah according according to our labor or according to our attorneys at solar Howard, they had never seen a case in 40 years of labor law in west virginia where the ceo and the founder was the one doing the labor organizing <laughs> that was apparently not normal um but you know that like i said that just mattered to me like i i don't want us to step i don't want us to step backwards uh as we're making this transition and we wanted to do right by folks and it just made a it made a ton of sense from the company's perspective at the same time that we were giving uh giving our employees what they needed close to wrap up here i've got two more questions what what's the growth plan what's on the horizon and what could you talk about your role in the Act Now Coalition, Appalachian Climate Technologies Coalition, and what that could mean for business growth as well. So we've got a dream that we can get to 100% renewable energy in West Virginia, and we're working to do that in the next 15 years. <laughs> it's when we do that, it's going to be a 50 billion dollar uh, investment. Yeah, 50 billion dollars of investment we're looking to make in West Virginia, and that's going to take a whole lot of talented people amount of jobs that's going to take uh and you know it's and uh, across lots of different kinds of jobs it's you know even even now within our 75 folks we've got electricians we've got uh folks coming out of the roofing world we've got project managers we've got designers who build these amazing 3d worlds so we can figure out how much sunlight's hitting every square inch of a roof every 15 minutes of the year you know, and then the uh, finance folks and the warehouse team and, you know, just all the different kinds of people that it takes to uh, pull these projects off. Because it turns out they're, they're a construction job, they're an electrical job, they're a financing job, they're a software job, and it's all rolled up into one. Um, so we need lots and lots of different skill sets by comparison total size of the industry last year was something in the 15 to 20 million dollar a year 
uh, space in West Virginia. Um, so we're trying to get to $50 billion worth of deployment in the next 15 years. Quite a scaling process. Yeah, uh, we're, we're looking to do some pretty amazing, massive things here. And so uh, we're really excited to be part of the Act Now Coalition with Coalfield and uh, you know, the city of Huntington, city of Charleston, WVU and Marshall. On the same team. In the same team uh, and the Nature Conservancy and uh, a bunch of other awesome uh, groups. Um, so we're, we're excited to be a part of that so that we can, uh, you know, get the, uh, get the warehousing and manufacturing space uh, in uh, that we need to pull this off in the state, as well as to start uh, to bring more folks into the industry. And, you know, when you, when you bring someone into a brand new industry, they, you know, it needs training and there's a learning curve there. And like, you're not going to be super, you're not going to be very productive. It takes investment. Yeah. Investment. And you're not going to be productive on day one. Like you're going to be like wide eyed and dazed and, uh, and that's going to take, uh, you know, three, six months of training to get folks to the space they need to be. So we're, we're really excited to be uh, part of this and working with Coalfield so that we can, um, so we can, uh, complete all that training that we need so that people can uh, know what they're know what they're doing and do quality work and uh, help us build all of these like we're, what what we're ultimately going to be doing here is building tens of thousands of little power plants on rooftops and farms all, all across the state and you need talented people who can build a power plant yeah and so, maybe related to that, what are, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in Appalachia? And what are some of the biggest changes you've not seen yet and you still hope to see soon? Yeah, um, I'd say the tone around renewable energy has really dramatically changed. Um, I think we've gone from a world of, and part of the reason people were telling me I was crazy was there was this assumption that no, there's only room for coal in West Virginia. And turns out that's just not true, that people are excited, excited about solar, that they're, um, you know, excited for the future here, that they kind of want to take control of their own destinies, which totally makes sense given who we are as a state. So there's all that. I'd say we've seen a really marked shift in the legislature. So last year, nine years ago, I was getting shut down by the Public Service Commission for trying to do a power purchase agreement. Last year, it got legalized. Uh, finally. And then in the, in the fall, we were able to do the first one of those statewide uh, on the coal field uh, on the West Edge factory in, in Huntington. We were able to do the largest nonprofit project ever done in the state and use that model that I've been dreaming about doing <laughs> all along with Coalfield. So really excited for that. Um, but beyond that too, uh, governor's office and the legislature have just been hearing from the big tech companies for the past five years from Amazon, and Microsoft and Google and all those big tech giants that they only want to come to West Virginia if they can get renewable energy. So um, they, they've committed to their employees, to their shareholders and to their customers that that's what they want. So, uh, you know, this isn't in order for us to attract the data centers and to attract the tech jobs and attract investment from those companies, we're going to need to shift things up and make investments in renewable energy. So I think that has sunk through at the state level. And now we're starting to see some 
pretty massive movement in this direction. So really excited for all that. The stuff I'd still like to change, it's we're kind of a banking desert in the state. Like there's, it's really, really hard for entrepreneurs to have the resources to start up. You know, like if you, uh, if, if you're in Silicon Valley or San Francisco and you like just spit, you're going to accidentally spit on a venture capitalist and they'll, and they'll, and like, you can just go in and it, like there's this whole ecosystem out there of people investing in new ideas, young talent. And in West Virginia, like I beat my head against a wall for six years trying to get anyone to uh, lend or support or set up bank accounts with us just because uh, banks banks and credit unions and uh, aren't interested in supporting small businesses and working with them and venture capital wasn't interested so uh, you know it was it was just a long slog and i know i was insane enough to keep going but i I know a lot of people are out there that get disillusioned like six months a year in and they're trying everything but like no one will work with them because we just don't have the resources here and it shouldn't be that way and so I'm really hoping that that any financial folks who are listening to this can uh, kind of whip the banking and credit union world into shape and actually start supporting small businesses. So that's that's uh, what I'd really love to see. Well, Dan, you're a remarkable entrepreneur, a great West Virginian, a very good friend. I've learned new things about you. I've really this gave us an excuse to uh, hear the longer version <laughs> of your story and what you've done is uh, just beautiful and inspiring. And thank you for spending some time today on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's always, it's always fun. See you soon. Change in the Coalfields is a podcast created by Coalfield Development in the hills and hollers of West Virginia. This episode was hosted by Brandon Dennison and produced and edited by JJN Multimedia. Become a part of our mission to rebuild the Appalachian economy by going to our website, coalfield-development.org to make a donation. You can email us anytime at info at coalfield-development.org and subscribe to our newsletter for more information on the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn by searching Coalfield Development. Check back soon for more episodes.